And just a reminder that our four-year-olds have children's church this morning, but our children through grade five will remain in the sanctuary. Good morning, brothers and sisters. You sound great today. And uh, if you sound good to me, I, I can't imagine how sweet the aroma of our praise is to our Lord and Savior. I'm grateful to get to worship with you. Before we dive into the book of Micah, one quick word of encouragement for me. Uh, our women's retreat is coming up this next weekend. And as of last Wednesday, we only had 25 women signed up for that retreat. And maybe there's a few more now over the last couple of days, I'm not sure. And I know that those 25 that go are going to have an incredible time. But I want to give one last plug, and I want to encourage you sisters to sign up. Today is the advertised deadline to sign up. You can just show up if you want, but it's better if you sign up today. And why aren't you going? Here's why you haven't signed up. You might say, oh, we just we got so much going on next weekend. If we waited for you to have a free weekend, we'd have to schedule this for the weekend after your funeral. You're, of course you're busy. We know that. Uh, and your life has a lot going on, I know. And your kids have activities. I, I know that's true. Um, but sometimes the best thing for your kids is for you to put your walk with Jesus first, your friendships first, so that you can be at your best for them. Uh, sometimes you need to be appropriately selfish. Give yourself permission to miss a couple of things so that you can attend to the most important thing, namely your own soul. You might say, oh, well, when I'm gone, my home is in disarray. Of course it is. A hundred percent it is. But look, there's a reason Jesus invented hot dogs and cereal. They're going to eat. They're going to be fine. They'll get by. I promise it's going to be okay. You got to let it go. Uh, you might say, hey, I, don't wanna, I don't like sleeping not in my bed. I get that. Camp Brookwoods, though, is an incredible facility. You're not in a tent. You're not on a floor. You're, you're in really great accommodations. And there are options available, rooms available, I think, uh, if you have some extraordinary uh, health needs. Uh, or there are hotels in a nearby town. You could even stay there if you need to. You might say, well, I just, you know... Uh, I snore a little bit, and we know, look, we need to normalize CPAPs. That's what needs to happen in our nation right now. <laughs> All right, let's pray and go home. No, you, look, we know you snore. We know you use a CPAP. We know that's not your hair. We know that's not your face. We know all these things. We love you. Do not let your dignity keep you from blessing. Go this weekend. Uh, if you don't have the money to go, we have the money for you to go. Just sign up and go. No questions asked. We want you to be there. There's a table in the lower lobby. It has pinatas on it. That's where you want to go get information. If you've got questions about lodging or things that you might need, talk to the sisters at the table downstairs. Brothers, if you have a woman in your life who has not yet signed up, that's because she's waiting on you to take the initiative. She wants you to be her hero. You sign her up today and surprise her with it, and she will give you hugs and kisses, and it'll be great. Women's Retreat next weekend, Camp Brookwoods, Lake Winnipesaukee. Uh, I hope next Sunday I see none of you ladies here. Go have a good time at camp. That would be great. All right. We're in the book of Micah today. And so would you open your Bibles, please, to Micah chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 826. Uh, and 
This is a beefy passage, and so it's going to be really helpful for you to keep your Bible open so you can refer back to it, and uh, I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning as well. Uh, When the hero shows up in a story, the people around the hero change. I want you to think of great works of literature or great movies or shows where the hero shows up and then things change. Scary bad guys crumble, the innocent people get brave, the presence of the hero changes the prospects of the people. So uh, when Hopalong Cassidy shows up or Luke Skywalker or Iron Man or Superman or when Benny from the Sandlot puts on his PF flyers, Like when the hero shows up, you know things are about to change in favor of the people that they're coming to rescue. We're familiar with that kind of story. And our familiarity with that kind of story is going to be really helpful in our study of Micah chapter 5 this morning. Because our passage today describes what it's like for God's people when the Messiah reigns. What's it like for the church? What's it like to be God's people when the Messiah is on the scene? Things change for everyone in his vicinity. Last week in our study of Micah, we heard Micah promise uh, that God was sending his Messiah, his anointed one, to rescue his people. That beautiful promise is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But then once the Messiah is born, what happens next? What does that mean for the people of God? It's it's one thing to be able to say, yes, he was born, but how does that impact our day-to-day lives and our presence in this world that is full of evil and darkness? So when we speak about the Messiah this morning, what we're talking about, who we're talking about is Jesus himself. Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, he is God's anointed one. He's the Messiah. And with Jesus on the scene, everything changes for his people, the church. Without Jesus, life is full of fear. Without Jesus, we are crushed by our spiritual enemy. Without Jesus, we are left to our idolatry. But since Jesus was born, since he died, died on the cross for our sins, since he rose from the dead, since he is coming again, everything is different for his people. We are transformed by his strength and his grace. The people that belong to Jesus, that's you people, the people that belong to Jesus possess certain characteristics because of Jesus. We can't manufacture these things, we can't fake these things The characteristics that Micah speaks of in chapter 5 are the indelible marks of the Messiah. So what does that look like for us? How do we know that a church walks closely with Jesus or that a believer walks closely with Jesus? What are the marks of that nearness to him? Well, this is what Micah helps us understand this morning. You know, churches can be known for a lot of things. Churches can be known for what they are for or what they are against. Churches can be known for a personality. They can be known for a program. They can be known for what they love or for what they hate. But Micah tells us this morning what the church must be marked by. He doesn't tell us every characteristic of Christ's church. 
but he gives us three that are essential for us. These are the marks of living closely with Jesus. So my purpose in preaching this passage is to clarify what it means to be the Messiah's people, to be Christ's church. And this is the kind of church that the people of South Shore Baptist Church will be as we walk closely with Jesus. So in Micah chapter 5, verses 5 to 15, Micah gives us three characteristics of the Messiah's people. I want you to follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 5. He begins by speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus. And Micah said this, He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there's no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be destroyed." In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you'll no longer worship the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities I will take vengeance in anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. So this passage, thick, strong language, but what it's describing for us is what it means to belong to the Messiah. When Jesus is on the scene, what does it look like to be Christ's church? Now, verses 5, 7, and 10 all begin with the same Hebrew word. It's translated, and it shall be, or in that day. Those three grammatical markers give us three paragraphs, and each one of those paragraphs describe a different key characteristic of the Messiah's people. And Micah gives us three of those. So what are those characteristics? Well, the first characteristic of the Messiah's people is this. The Messiah's people are secure. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the Messiah's people are secure. We possess a real security because He is our peace. That beautiful declaration begins verse 5. And the question we would ask then is, in what way is the Messiah our peace? How does he do that in a world filled with turmoil and chaos and attack and spiritual warfare? How is it that the Messiah is our peace? And Micah identifies two different ways. He tells us, first of all, in verse 5, the Messiah eliminates our fear. He removes our fear in the face of attack. We stand secure with the Messiah because he's our peace. And so look at what he says in verse 5. He says, he will be their peace 
when Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses. Micah speaks so matter-of-factly about the invasion of Assyria. He states it as a given that even as the Messiah reigns, there will still be attacks against the Messiah's people. Because the time period that Micah speaks of here is not eternal glory. This is not new heavens and new earth yet. It's that time before, the time between the coming of the Messiah and His second coming, His ultimate victory. So in these days, the days that you and I live in, future tense to Micah, present tense to us, Micah understood there's going to be attacks against the Messiah's people, against His church. Even so, the Messiah's people do not need to be afraid. Micah, his reference to Assyria here is almost certainly metaphorical in this passage. It's not always metaphorical or symbolic, but here it almost certainly is. And we can say that because of his reference to the land of Nimrod in verse 6. The land of Nimrod is not Assyria. The land of Nimrod is Babylon. And so by naming these two adversaries in such close proximity to each other, it's as if he's saying any and all enemies of God. When any attack comes against us, when any enemy advances on God's people, he uses the word Assyria in this same symbolic way later in chapter 7. Also, the prophets Nahum and Zechariah use Assyria in this symbolic way as well to describe any and all enemies of God's people. So, Micah is saying that for those who belong to the Messiah, in every attack from every conceivable enemy, we are secure in the Messiah's peace. Peace doesn't mean in this instance the absence of threat, the absence of enemy, the absence of attack, but rather it means when the enemy comes. We stand secure in the peace of the Messiah. We don't crumble. We don't weep. We're not afraid because Christ is our King. The Prince of Peace holds us secure in every spiritual attack. And the second way the Messiah acts as our peace in verses 5 and 6, look, this is a bit of a weird one, but he supplies leaders. He gives godly leaders who are like him to help in this attack. So at the end of verse 5, look at what Micah said. He said, when Assyria advances, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men, they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So that phrase, seven, even eight leaders of men, it's a figure of speech. And it's another way of saying that there will be an abundance of leaders or there will be leaders enough for the task. So whatever it is that God's people require in this scenario, God's going to provide the leaders that they need to see them through. Now, there's disagreement among biblical scholars as to whether or not this line depicts God's people in a negative light or a positive light. Some will argue that this is negative language, as if the people of God are bragging about what they will do for themselves. So, on the one hand, you have the Messiah who is our peace, and then you have God's people saying, we will raise up seven, even eight leaders of men, that type of bragging. Now, to be sure, God's people, very capable of that sort of bragging and chest thumping, and that sort of just 
ignorant egotism in the face of sovereignty. We're very capable of that. And for sure, we have examples of wicked leadership elsewhere in the book of Micah. But in this instance, I don't think that's what's at play. Feel free to disagree with me. That's okay. But in this instance, I think that this is a positive depiction of the sort of leaders that God provides for his people, godly leaders. You'll remember, of course, that earlier in Micah, we have depictions of the leaders of people who are evil schemers. They prey upon innocent and wicked people for their own profit, for their own benefit. In response to that, when the Messiah lands, when the leader of God's people is present, he will raise up leaders like him, humble, reliant on God to lead his people. The Apostle Paul echoes this idea in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where he says, And he himself, that's Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So we can confirm what Micah has described here, that the people of God are still under attack and we have to be ready to fight. Even though we don't fight as the world does. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, but according to Ephesians 6, our enemies are the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The church is not left to fight on our own resources or strength, but rather the risen Christ, who is the peace of his people, gives his church those who will pastor and teach so it is ready for action. And did you notice that the leaders of the Messiah's people are not the ones credited with the success. At the end of verse 6, the credit goes to the Messiah. Look, he says, so he, that, that he is the Messiah. In this way, the Messiah will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. The strength to obtain victory comes from Christ. So when the enemy attacks the Messiah is our peace, and His people are secure. What does it look like to be the Messiah's people? It means we are secure in the peace He gives. There's a second characteristic that Micah lays out for us in this passage. And the second characteristic of Christ's church, the Messiah's people are influential. In verses 7 and 9, God's people have influence among other people on a planet filled with dark sin. In verses 7 and 8, we're given two word pictures that describe the role of the Messiah's people among the nations. In verse 7, we are like dew. In verse 8, we are like a young lion. Let's talk a moment about these word pictures. Did you know that you are like dew? What are we talking about when we're talking about do. Verse 7, the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. So that phrase, the remnant of Jacob, that's a poetic way of describing the people of God. 
And what does it mean to be do among many peoples? Well, the word translated do can also mean light, rain, or drizzle. The image describes the refreshing, revitalizing effect of dew and showers on the land. Also, the same effect of God's people. God's people will in some way have a renewing and beneficial impact on the nations. So to be like do means we bring new life. God's people are like do in that we bring new life. We bring refreshment. We bring opportunity. We bring dead things to life in God's way with God's word. Micah tells us in verse 5 that the dew doesn't wait for anyone or linger for mankind. In other words, this is not the work that's under human control, but this is part of God's provision for the natural good of the land. So people are going to be given by the Messiah a ministry patterned after the Messiah that dictates the destiny of nations and people. He's giving us this ministry so that in this world where Assyria attacks, where the land of Nimrod schemes, that still this tiny remnant, though depleted in size, has outsized influence. Remember earlier in chapter 4 when Micah described what these last days would be like. He said the word of God will go out from his holy mountain and nations will stream up to it. And here again we have this picture of God's people being a blessing to all nations with this word picture of do. The church brings life as God's word goes out to the nations. We must be like that because the Messiah has made us that way. But the second word picture in verse 8 is a word picture of a lion. And I want you to look at verse 8 with me. Micah said, Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there's no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be destroyed. Now, in biblical imagery, a lion is an image of unstoppable victory over our foes. So Micah has described a remnant, a small remnant, but they are divinely empowered to oppose the enemies of God. So what are we talking about when, when the Word of God says His church will be like a lion? Well, the lion represents judgment. Dew represents new life. Lion represents judgment. Dew represents the opportunity of salvation. The lion represents the certainty of God's judgment on sin. So the imagery of the church as a lion trampling and tearing, it doesn't sit well with our modern sensitivities. The due picture, we're all good with being due. A lion that tramples and tears, unopposed. That makes us squirm a little bit. So it might help us to sit with Jesus, who said in Matthew chapter 25 that There are two groups of people before his throne of judgment. There are the sheep and there are the goats. Those who will know blessing, those who will know judgment. 
Likewise, Paul wrote of the church this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He said, For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. Here we have dew and lion all in the same line here in Paul's writings. So there are some Christians who would read verse 8 as a call to go to war against people that they identify as enemies of the church. And I think probably the reason why there are some Christians like that is because their media providers inform their theology more than their Bibles do. The only way you can take verse 8 as a call to war against people is if you do not read the rest of your Bible or do not listen to the words of Jesus. For sure, God's people carry a holy anger at the prominence of sin and its decay, its impact on the world around us. But when Jesus informs our understanding of verse 8, then the church that is like a lion is not inflicting judgment, but we are a confident reminder of the judgment to come. We are not the judges of anyone's souls. We are not the inflictors of judgment. This is God's work alone. So when Jesus informs your understanding of verse 8, then you'll be a lion who doesn't resist an evildoer. But if slapped on your right cheek, then you'll turn your other to him also. And if someone takes your shirt, then you'll give them your coat as well. And if they force you to go one mile with them, you'll go two miles with them instead. You will love your enemy and do good to those who harm you because judgment belongs to the Lord. And it might just happen that as you walk in the way of our crucified Savior, that the person to whom you once were a lion announcing judgment might find you to be due, promising new life as they turn to Christ and your adversary becomes your brother, your sister through faith in Jesus Christ. It happens all the time. It happened to you, didn't it? Because you weren't a nice sinner. You weren't a clean sinner. You weren't a, a, a sinner with potential. This, the one that God had to have on his team. You were lost, a rebel against God, content in the darkness of your sin. And maybe it was cloaked in some sort of religion. What a horrible way to live your life. But God saw you and he rescued you. And he brought new life to you. And that's what the church does as well. We influence the nations with the word of God. What are the Messiah's people like? The Messiah's people have security. We have influence. Third and final characteristic, the Messiah's people are purified. On first reading verses 10 through 15, it can sound really odd. The language sounds like harsh judgment until you sit with them for a bit and you recognize what God is working in his people. Verses 10 to 14 are all spoken to God's people and they describe a process of purification, of sanctification. God is removing things from his people. And so quiz time, what is God removing from his people in verses 10 and 11? He is removing from them their military security. So horses, chariots, fortified cities, 
These things represent the entire military complex. And why would God remove these things from His people? Well, the reason is He wants His people to trust Him more than their weapons. He wants His people to know that He fights for them. The battle belongs to the Lord. Micah's words here remind me of Psalm 20, verse 7, which says, Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You cannot trust in God and trust in chariots. You can't trust in God and trust in your treasury. You can't trust in God and trust in yourself. We are to trust the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. Not only does He remove from His people their trusted weaponry, these false sources of security. But in verses 12 to 14, what is God removing from his people there? He's removing their idolatry. Sorceries, fortune tellers, carved images, sacred pillars. God is taking it all down. This is first commandment enforcement. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, do not have other, any other gods beside me. And isn't it interesting that these sorts of things are found present among God's people? Micah isn't saying this to nations on the outside. He's talking about the practice of sorcery and all of this garbage within the covenant people. These words are spoken to the church. And God in His grace will purify His church of all this evil so that He can be our God and we will be His people. And look, Christian... If you are dabbling in some New Age stuff, I want you to see that junk as God sees it. God sees it as idolatry. Horoscopes, Reiki, psychics, crystals, all of it is evil deception. Look, I understand why hurting people turn to any source they think will provide relief. But there are some things in this world that promise help and deliver hell. Listen, teenagers, every other person in your school is rocking a crystal, either around their neck or in their pocket. And they will tell you it helps because no one wants to say, I'm carrying around a dumb painted rock that I paid money for. But when they show you their rock and talk about their faith in the rock to change their energy, don't be persuaded, but be sad that they have put their hope in something of their own hands, not the one who made their hands. Don't be persuaded. God loves you. You're His precious creation. And though this day is hard, He has not left you. Your Messiah is with you to give you security. He is your peace. God has counted every one of your tears. He is near to the brokenhearted. He gave His one and only Son to die for you. He is your rescue. No one and no thing else. By His grace, He will purify us by removing all of our idolatries. And then verse 15. Verse 15 is different from all the rest. Verses 10 to 14 are spoken to the church, but verse 15 is spoken to the world, those outside the covenant faith. 
In verse 15, he says, I will take vengeance in anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. What's verse 15 about? It's about God's vengeance, his vengeance on sin. Now, we equate the word vengeance with viciousness, nastiness, meanness, vindictiveness. The Bible does not. That doesn't make it more pleasant the way the Bible deals with vengeance. It's a hard word. It's it's not probably one of the top ten characteristics you would equate with God. But vengeance from God is what is required for justice to be done. And so if you struggle to understand God as a God of vengeance, then you need to spend some time with Psalm 94, which is a song about God's vengeance. And a few of the lines from it go this way. Lord, God of vengeance, shine, rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, they crush your people. They oppress your heritage. They kill the widow and the foreigner and murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord doesn't see it. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage. If the Lord had not been my helper, I would soon rest in the silence of death. But the Lord is my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. He will pay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. So you might look at those who oppose God and say, my weaponry will make this right. And God says, I'll take that. And you might look at those who oppose God and say, their gods seem interesting, and God says, I'll crush that. And he, you might say, God, what about your enemies? What are you going to do about them? And God says, I'll take care of that. And he does. He takes care of them with justice, and he takes care of you with purification. God's people are a sanctified people. So what do the Messiah's people look like? This is what Mike has given us this morning in this passage. These three paragraphs, each giving us a different characteristic of God's people with the Messiah on the scene. The Messiah's people are secure, without fear, and given godly leadership. The Messiah's people are influential, bringing words of new life and warning of judgment. And finally, the Messiah's people are purified, with their idolatries removed and justice applied to the nations. It's security, influence, and purity. These are key characteristics of Christ's church. When we walk closely with Jesus, we'll know his strength and we'll rest in his security. And when we commune with Jesus, then out of our mouths will come the overflow of our hearts and we'll influence others with the words of God. And when we listen to Jesus then he will sanctify us so that we would be holy as he is holy. The church that walks deeply with Jesus is a church that transforms lives. The impact of Christ's people on this world is undeniable. In the words of Acts 17, we turn this world upside down. Now, many people in this past week were troubled by a conference that happened in Boston over the weekend called SatanCon. Did you hear about that? It met at the Hyatt, Copley Square. It got a lot of press, a lot of nationwide press. 
uh, a lot of Christian people upset. I read a lot of comments online like, look how far we've fallen, and this is why we're under God's judgment. And as I read those stories, I kept thinking about Micah chapter 5. In light of Micah 5, a few thoughts. First, if you think Satan is hanging out at the Hyatt this weekend, I got some Motel 6s we should visit together. I mean. Second, these so-called Satanists have done us a favor. They've made themselves known. Credit to them, at least they're consistent. At least they know who they are and who they aren't. The truth is that Satan's influence is far more vast, far more devastating than a single dumb conference at a hotel. The evil of hell is active and relentless in our adoration of money and power. It is active in corrupt business practices. It is present in our schools already. It has a stakehold in so many of our homes. The presence of Satan and the influence of hell is smoldering in every act of abuse, every demoralizing word to a child, every lie, every corrupt act, every interaction with pornography. SatanCon is nothing. The real work of Satan is far more widespread and devastating than we can imagine. The situation is more horrific than you even realized. And yet, the Messiah has come, and he will be our peace. The one who conquered death and hell is our Savior. So no matter how much hell roars, we are secure in Christ. And even though evil is widespread, we can influence lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even when temptation comes our way, Jesus will deliver us from all evil. So the call of this passage is that we would be much with Jesus and that we would influence this world with the gospel. Don't be afraid for your home, but be much with Jesus. And don't be afraid for our schools, but you walk with Jesus and influence the, the people, your neighbors around you. Don't be afraid for our nation. Be much with Jesus. And let the good news of the gospel go out from your home, from this church, so that the nations would come to God. When the Messiah is on the scene... Things change. Things are different. His people are marked differently. And so may we be a church that turns this world upside down because of our likeness to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this empowering word from your prophet Micah that speaks to us of security. We confess we are frequently terrified. And this passage speaks to us of our influence. We, we frequently feel silenced and invisible. And it speaks to us of holiness. And we confess that we frequently put our trust in things that are not trustworthy. But how good are you in your grace to give us the Messiah. And how good are you to give us so great a salvation as this, 
Lord God, we praise you. Let there be no mistake that we are the Messiah's people. May people recognize him before they recognize us when they interact with us. May they hear his words in our speech. And may his thoughts reign in our thoughts. And may they see his actions in our actions so that the darkness would be pushed back. The light of the gospel would shine bright. People would hear and believe and be rescued through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, let us be that kind of church. Not not scared. Not withering. But bold because our Messiah reigns and we'll be much with him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This morning, we're going to uh, respond to the Word of God with communion.